The Supreme Court's term has ended, and Democrats are still responding to one of its most controversial rulings. President Biden said he would support an exception to the filibuster rule in order to codify Roe v. Wade into law. His statement comes in the wake of lawsuits from activists in a half dozen states, all challenging different legal aspects of trigger abortion bans. At least 13 states have so-called trigger laws in place. We're diving into that today as part of our Remaking America project. Over the next two years, we'll collaborate with public radio stations across the country to ask how our democracy is working and how it isn't. I'm Celeste Headley in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. To have your questions answered on future shows or let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more in just a moment. We're talking about constitutional rights and changing the Constitution. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us today is Professor Olatunde Johnson from the Columbia University School of Law. Professor Johnson, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Ellie Mistal. He's a correspondent for The Nation and author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Ellie, great to have you with us. What's up? What's going on? We also have Brandon Straysner, an attorney and researcher at the California Constitution Center. Hi there, Brandon. Hello. Good morning. Okay, there is a lot to talk about. Uh, Professor Johnson, let me start with you, because I've been reporting since Friday on the Supreme Court overturning the constitutional right to uh, abortion. And a, a number of listeners wrote in saying, tell Celeste she's wrong abortion was never a constitutional right because it's not in the Constitution. Can you tell us what a constitutional right is? Yeah, um, so that's a really um, interesting retort because yeah. we've understood it to be a constitutional right for the last 50 years. So generally speaking, when we're talking about a federal constitutional right, we're talking about a right recognized by the Constitution against infringement um, by state governments or by the federal government, sometimes private parties. And sometimes, and this is probably what some of your listeners were referring to, it's not specifically delineated um, like an abortion right. It may be encompassed on under a broader notion of right, like a liberty right. So in our constitution, rights are really articulated at a very high level of generality. And they're defined in more specific ways in litigation and through precedent and through the judicial process. And who defines that, Congress or the courts? Well, it's really interesting because I think when people talk about a constitutional right, at least when we as lawyers do, we're talking about something that's recognized by the U.S. Constitution, right? So that's something that is, in effect, defined by courts or refined by courts. But it's an iterative process. I mean, the people... Um, citizens, social movements, all contribute to our definition of what is the right. I think the question comes sometimes from the fact that Congress has a lot of power to define a lot of things, like discrimination against pregnancy. It could codify um, Roe. Well, that's what you were just referring to. And sometimes colloquially, we call those rights. They're not strictly speaking constitutional rights, but they're really very important legislative rights, um, yeah. and they should be part of the discourse here. So, Ellie, you wrote in your book, Allow Me to Retort, quote, if we're going to talk about the constitutional right to an abortion, then we're going to talk about it from first principles. And the first principle that the people who wrote the Constitution missed is that women are people, full, equal people, 
end quote. Now, according to the Pew Research Center, 61% of Americans believe abortion should be legal. You're one of them. Um, Do you think the right to abortion needs to be added to the Constitution explicitly? I mean, it depends on on which way you want to go with this. I want to first respond to your listeners who are saying that you are wrong uh, for saying the the right to abortion is in the Constitution. Your listeners who are saying that are fools, all right? Of course abortion rights are in the Constitution. Now, I will admit that they are not explicitly uh, laid out in that word in the Constitution. You want to know some other rights that are like that? The right to marriage is not said. There's not the word marriage anywhere in the Constitution. And yet, even Republicans think that people have the right to marry. They might disagree on which people are people, but they agree that people, somehow defined, have the right to marry. That word marriage, not in the Constitution. Neither is the word family. Neither is the word raising your kids, right? You have a right to raise your kids the way you want the way you want to. That's not in the Constitution, but I think people would be pretty surprised if the federal government came into your house and said, actually, bedtime's at nine o'clock, not eight o'clock, right? So there are lots of rights that are in the Constitution that are not explicitly laid out in the Constitution. And that's in the Constitution. The Ninth Amendment, which conservatives always want to act like it doesn't exist, says explicitly that there are unenumerated rights in the Constitution that they couldn't write out. The constitutional founders wrote out the amendments that were important to them. And that gets to the point that I'm making in my book. Because what was important to the white male colonist slaveholders, colonists and slaveholders and misogynists, Who wrote the Constitution? Well, men's rights were important to them. Wealthy white landowner men's rights were important to them. And so they wrote down the rights that they themselves, rich white men at the time, wanted. They didn't write down the rights that could have applied to, you know, everybody else. So when you go back to first principles and you think about why the protection of women's rights, the protection of reproductive rights, the protection of a whole slew of minority rights were not written in the original 18th century document, it's because the only people allowed to write, vote, or ratify that 18th century document happened to be wealthy, white, 30-year-old landowners, slaveholders, sexist, misogynists, and colonists. Okay, and just for our listeners' benefit, the uh, uh, amendment that Ellie is talking about says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. That was James Madison's attempt to make sure the Bill of Rights wasn't seen as being conclusive. Um, let me bring you into this, Brandon, because we there is a lawsuit now. A Jewish congregation in Florida has filed a lawsuit saying the state's abortion ban infringes on their right to privacy and religious freedom. You are with the California Constitution Center in a state. What happens when a state right and a federal right maybe conflict? Well, typically the federal constitution is viewed as setting the floor. The Bill of Rights and the amendments therein are kind of a floor. You can go no lower than that in infringing on or affecting the rights laid out in the federal constitution. But state constitutions can and often have set the, you know, a ceiling or a higher level of those given rights. So that Florida lawsuit is looking to the Florida state constitution, in my understanding, and saying, look, under the state constitution, we've got more rights here. And so this ban might pass federal muster given the recent Dobbs decision, But under our state constitution, we're violating those greater rights. And therefore, uh, that particular law or statute is unconstitutional under the state constitution. Here's what Justin left us in our inbox. 
I don't think that changing the Constitution should be relatively easy, but there should be processes in place to make it possible in an efficient way when society demands or has the need for the Constitution to change. America is always going to be an evolving nation. If we keep it to where we're not able to adapt to a changing culture, then there is going to be a conflict where the government is not going to be able to meet the needs of the public. So, Professor Johnson, what about the originalist argument? Justice Amy Coney Barrett describes herself as an originalist. Um, Here she is answering a question about that uh, posed by Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass. So originalism means that you treat the Constitution as law because it commits these texts to writing. And in interpreting that law, you interpret it in accord with the meaning that people would have understood it to have at the time that it was ratified. And the reason that you do that is because otherwise, well, as I said, the law stays the same until it's lawfully changed. Otherwise, judges would be in the constitutional convention business of updating the law rather than allowing the people to take control of that. And Jay tweets this, I believe the Constitution to be a well-thought-out document composed by wise and sincere patriots. The answer is it should not be changed. Your response to that, Professor Johnson? Yeah. um, So I think that this raises a lot of serious questions. Um, So one, um, originalism, it it purports to be a neutral principle, but it's applied in highly politicized ways. And we see that in the way in which the court takes on the abortion right in Dobbs. And it's very selective use of history there. And what Ellie Mastal has talked about, a history in which women we're not full participants. So the problem, the legitimacy problem of, of um, originalism is really made plain by Dobbs. But then you also had, um, just a few days before, the Bruin decision, which was a gun rights decision, where the court applies originalism in a way that some scholars have called a kind of checkered originalism, where mm. it's very selective view of history. So there are problems with applying the methodology, just both in a practical sense and then in a legitimacy sense. And then just to add one more point, having a constitution that is so hard to amend and a, an originalist method um, together raise serious questions about legitimacy in a modern democracy. Ellie, I wanted to go back to this originalist argument with you, and, and I wanted to read a quote that's actually in the Jefferson Memorial from Thomas Jefferson, obviously problematic in and of himself. But he said, I'm not an advocate for frequent changes in laws and constitutions, but laws and institutions must go hand in hand with the progress of the human mind. As that becomes more developed, more enlightened, as new discoveries are made, new truths discovered and manners and opinions change, um, institutions must also advance to keep pace with the times. Ellie, why is there such a, a, a desire among some to keep the Constitution limited to what the framers would have wanted? Because the framers wanted to erect a white supremacist slaveholding empire in the new world. And there are some people who still like that. Like, it's really, it's not that complicated, right? When Amy Coney Barrett is talking about originalism in her quote, she's, she's not wrong, right, about what she thinks is, is, is happening, right? There's... Understand, originalism is an interpretive method, right? So there is text, all right? If the text is clear, great, you move on, happy day. If the text is not clear, if it's ambiguous, if there is uh, room for doubt, 
originalists say that we should resolve that ambiguity by going back and looking at what the slaveholders and the colonists thought. I say, that's ridiculous. They thought bad things. They were bad people. Why would we look back to their society? Why would we look back to their, to their original public meaning when their original public meaning, again, specifically excluded most of the people who are now living in the country? Why would we ever do that? And the reason why some people want to do that is because they only, they only want those rights that were given to white men in 1787. They want to keep it that way forever. That, that's why we're, we're having this fight, right? When, when Sam Alito, in his Dobbs opinion, says that abortion rights are not deeply rooted in American history, what he's talking about is white male American history. He's not talking about anybody else. But he's okay with that, and originalists are okay with that. That's why their theory is morally and, and legally bankrupt. I'll, I, 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 see, I, I do this in my book. The, the clearest distinction to me between originalism and like rationality is the Eighth Amendment. Right? The Eighth Amendment says textually, cruel and unusual punishment is prohibited. What does cruel mean? Constitution doesn't say. What does unusual mean? Constitution doesn't say. Originalists say, let's go back and look at what the founders thought were okay punishments, as if an 18th century punishments are something that should be applied in the 21st century. I say, of course we should not look at what those people thought. Those people were, were depraved in what they were willing to do to other humans. We should look at what we think and make cruel and unusual punishment mean what we think it should mean, not what they think it should mean. Okay, so uh, this brings us back to how and should we amend the Constitution. It was written 235 years ago, as uh, Ellie points out, by land-owning, in in many cases, slave-owning white men. Um, Those who take issue with the originalist reading say uh, enslaved people probably didn't have rights. Uh, People of color, women. How do you, Professor Johnson, talk to your law students about that? Yeah, well, so I say a couple of things, um, and they're implicated by your question and also by what um, Ellie just said. Okay, so one is that um, you can define the right really narrowly, the way the Supreme Court did, as an abortion right, or you could define it as a liberty or a privacy right. And when you define it more broadly, you allow the kind of updating that makes it have contemporary relevance and meaning and not just be a retrograde political project. The second thing is when you think about even original public meaning or um, framers, um, the concentration and the focus should not just be on the founders. We fought a civil war to have equality provisions um, in our constitution um, to establish an emergent right to vote that didn't just extend to landowning white men. We also have a 19th Amendment. So one way of thinking about even constitutional interpretation for public meaning is that we're updating our constitution. We should interpret it, as many scholars say, holistically. But the third thing I say is really, I'm a scholar of legislation, right? I think a lot about Congress. I think about state and local legislatures. And we should interpret the constitution in ways that give legislative bodies the power to enact and to act and give voters the right to have electoral say in the design of those institutions. So that's where some of the updating happens. That's how we get Title IX or codification of Roe is through the the congressional process. So, Brandon, 
how, in a realistic world, on the ground, how does that interact with people's interpretation of their own faith? I want to play a clip here, which is why I bring this up. This is the Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers testifying during the January 6th hearings about pressure that he received from the Trump administration to change election results. And it is a tenet of my faith that the Constitution is divinely inspired of my most basic foundational beliefs. And so for me to do that because somebody just asked me to is foreign to my very being. I I, I will not do it. Brendan, how do you um, grapple with someone who believes the Constitution shouldn't be changed because, as Rusty Bauer says, it's divinely inspired? Well, if it's divinely inspired, it's not necessarily the word of the divine. It's still a word of mortals, and we can take our divine inspiration and carry it through toward amending it. Uh, And the federal constitution within it has a mechanism for amendment. So uh, even if, you know, divinely inspired, the document itself provides us the mechanism or tool to implement changes, as difficult as that might be. We also got this tweet from someone called An Ordinary Dame who says, could your panel please explain why each person doesn't have property rights to their own body? We have intellectual rights in which we can protect the products of our brains. Don't our individual bodies belong to us to protect whether to produce or not produce offspring? And Professor Johnson, I would assume that question's for you. Yeah, so, I mean, the question is one that I think courts will be addressing. Um, So one of the assumptions that the Dobbs opinion makes is that we have ended litigation, that we're just going to resolve this through some sort of deliberative political process. But I think the litigation is going to continue, and it may involve theories um, like um, property-based theories. It may involve theories like why can't localities or cities create um, sanctuaries, right, for um, that honor that if we really believe that this is about sending it to the people, we'll send it way down to the people, to cities and city um, um, councils to decide. I think those are all among the issues that are going to be dealt with. They're, the court dismissed the equality-based arguments that women um, um, have relied on abortion and also that there are equal protection interests. That also could be litigated. So I'm not saying that I know how, well, I know how this court would end up on it, um, but we don't know how other courts will end up on these on, on these theories. And I think that these things will continue to be litigated in state and federal courts, um, despite Dobbs. And the last thing is that state constitutions um, may protect these rights in different ways, and some of them quite explicitly. Yeah, which, uh, Brandon, we'll ask you about in a moment. But first, Ellie, we got this tweet from a listener. They say, while cultural influences have changed since the Founding Fathers composed the Constitution, the article address perpetual principles of responsibility and the relationship between citizens and the government, it is timeless, end quote. The founders deliberately made it difficult to change the U.S. Constitution. Um, Do you believe there are universal principles in the Constitution that do stand the test of time? Cultural interests have changed since the writing of the Constitution. Is that the, that's the, that's the question? I mean, I, When the Constitution was written, I was three-fifths of a person. When the Constitution was written, if I went from Mississippi to uh, uh, New York, I was escaped. I was was stolen property that had to be returned 
The Constitution had a fugitive slave clause in the original document. Yeah, I'd say cultural uh, interpretations have changed since the Constitution. No, it's not timeless. It's actually quite dumb in various, in various areas. You want me to give you an example? What kind of democratic republic are we running where the people don't get to popularly elect their president? That's pretty stupid. What kind of constitutional republic are we running where the federal elections are not done by the federal government but are done by 50 different states, all with their own different rules on who can vote, when to vote, how to vote, what qualifications you need to vote? How does that make sense? This is a constitution written in a time when to go from New York to California meant you took three months and you had to eat gym on the way. Now we get on Delta. The idea that this document is somehow divinely inspired by slavers um, or timeless or does not desperately need to be updated for the modern era is just bonkers to me. I also want to go back to this point that this other person made about the property rights. You, we do have property rights that are under the Fourth Amendment that says that's there, there's, a, you know, there's a prohibition on illegal searches and seizures. That's a property right right there. Why has that property right not been applied to women? Because again, consider the source. Only white men were concerned about their rights. I can, I can defend the right to an abortion through many clauses in the Constitution. The First Amendment grant, grants the free exercise of religion since the idea that, 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 that life starts at fertilization is a Catholic fundamentalist religious belief it shouldn't apply to other religions. Jewish people, for instance, should be able to have abortions. And if they can't, that's a violation of their free exercise clause. Yeah. There's, uh, there's the Eighth Amendment that I've made. There's the Ninth Amendment that I've made. There's the Fourteenth Amendment. There's the Thirteenth Amendment where involuntary servitude is already prohibited under the Constitution. Renting out a woman's body for nine months is uh, for free against her will should already be uh, unconstitutional under the 13th Amendment. Huh. So again, this idea that this Constitution is ossified in a white male version from the 18th century is just wrong and provably dumb. So Brandon, you're in California. Residents there will be able to vote on whether abortion should be protected under the state constitution. How easy is it to change a state constitution versus the very high bar of changes to the federal constitution? Well, that definitely depends on the state. But for uh, better or worse here in California, we have robust direct democracy provisions. So we can, if we can get it on the ballot, we can change our constitution by popular vote as needed. However, um, a handful of states are starting to bring forward lawsuits to challenge uh, various abortion bans triggered by the overturning of Roe. There are also cases in which states are trying to look at uh, punishing women for going to another state to obtain an abortion which may be uh, illegal in their own. How effective, I guess, how convoluted might this litigation become if one state protects the right to abortion, another doesn't, and they're trying to make that cross state lines? Uh, it will be extremely convoluted and will be in, a, I think, a, you know, an uncharted sea, so to speak. There are several different you know, challenges or constitutional doctrines that could apply. Uh, we have a constitutional right to travel. Uh, you know, there's the dormant commerce, commerce clause that could come up. And then the question of even, you know, states trying to apply their criminal or civil jurisdiction to citizens who are citizens of another state or the ones assisting or providing these abortions. Those are all very uncertain questions. But I think there are a number of legal tools at various persons and states to, uh, disposals to help provide abortion access to those who live in other states who lack it. 
Professor Johnson, what states have codified abortion rights into their constitutions at this point? I don't actually have the count um, in in front of me. Um, perhaps Brandon um, does, but there are some states that have done it legislatively. There are some states that have done it constitutionally, but I expect there to be more work on both the legislative and the constitutional um, front. Um, and it's a reminder of the difference, um, just to emphasize the point that Brandon made, about the difference between the state constitutional amendment process and the federal constitutional amendment process. It's very hard to amend our constitution at the federal level. And it's um, rarely done. You know, we're still having a live um, constitutional battle over the amendment of the, the ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, um, which would put women into the Constitution. Um, but the state constitutions can be amended. So I don't have the precise count in front of me, though. Well, before we let Brandon answer that, let me play you this message that we got from uh, Tamara in Colorado. I live in a state where it's relatively easy to change the state constitution So while I agree that the U.S. Constitution should be harder to change, I believe it's a little too hard at the moment. Uh, Colorado has a provision where you can change the state constitution by referendum, and there are a bunch of things in the state constitution that have been repealed two years later, and I don't think that should be a part of our national constitutional life. Brandon, your reaction both to uh, Tamara's voicemail and and whether or not you have a, a count on the states who've codified abortion access in their constitutions? Well, I, I don't believe I have a count off, offhand. Much of the, the codification might very well be through uh, statute. And many state constitutions have a more robust right to privacy. Cal- the California Constitution, Article 1, Section 1, added uh, from voters in the 1970s an express right to privacy. And that's often been an anchor point for protecting the right to abortion. I do know multiple states, California included, are in a rush to the ballot box to codify expressly in their state constitution that we are protecting that right to choose, that right to an abortion. Uh, And to respond to the uh, comment uh, about the balance between, you know, amending the federal constitution, amending the state constitution, I can understand the uh, perspective that you'd want the federal constitution to be harder to amend. Uh, Getting three quarters of states to sign on as the the current requirement is extremely, extremely difficult. It's, it's, you know, a supermajority of a supermajority, if you will. Uh, And, uh, you know, I'm not sure we'd want it to be that hard, but uh, I understand that difference. And at least practically speaking in these times, uh, looking to states that have uh, the ability to respond more quickly and to amend the Constitution and to protect rights uh, with easier mechanisms is the, one of the few coping mechanisms we have on hand right now. And just to answer that question for all those listening, the number of states who've uh, codified that right into their constitution is four plus the District of Columbia. We're talking about changing the constitution and constitutional rights. And we'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Remember, to be part of a future conversation, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Now let's get back to our conversation on constitutional rights with Professor Olatunde Johnson from the Columbia University School of Law, Ellie Mistal, correspondent at The Nation, and Brandon Straisner, an attorney and researcher at the California Constitution Center. And here's a voicemail that we got from Ian in Cleveland. I think it's far too difficult to change the Constitution in the United States. 
in many countries in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, changing the Constitution is far simpler. Uh, the Constitution is supposed to be a document that governs us. It's not the document that binds us. We also got this tweet from Maria. The U.S. should evaluate cases like the Colombian constitutional reform in 1991 and the current Chilean reform, two young nations that understand that society changes as the nation evolves and that civilians are not the same now as they were in the 1800s. I, I wonder, Ellie, if there is also... Um, concern about rushing to change the Constitution. And I say that because both sides of the political aisle are hoping to do so. There are some conservative legislators right now who've been working to call a constitutional convention in order to, in their words, rein in an out-of-control federal government. One Iowa state representative said it's, quote, the last line of defense we have. They're not going to restrict themselves. Um what kind of measures would you like to see put in place to keep the conversation over constitutional amendments rational and grounded in uh, modern society? Yeah, well, the reason why I'm not in favor of a new constitutional convention is because a new one would repeat the original sin of the old one, which is to not represent everybody equally. If we call the constitutional convention right now, it would be for reasons passing understanding done based on state lines. If you have one representative from Wyoming in your new constitutional convention, how many representatives should you have from California if we're going to play it that way? And if your answer is south of 60, you are simply wrong. When South Africa redid its constitution after apartheid, so like our, like like the United States, South Africa had an apartheid constitution. We arguably overcame that in 1865. They uh, took until the 1990s. When they overcame their apartheid constitution, did they do what we did after 1865? Did they just tack on some baubles, some new amendments, and say, okay, we're good now? No, they threw their trashy Afrikaans constitution into the dumpster of history, wrote a new one, took two years, but who did they invite to, to write it? Everybody. All the, all the peoples were represented, represented in proportion to their population at this new constitutional convention. Whites happened to be outnumbered in South Africa. What do you know? And they wrote a new constitution, which, quite frankly, is one of the better constitutions, written constitutions, now available in, on the globe in terms of the protection of human rights. Hmm, I wonder why. So in America, I do not believe that we right now have the political will to have a new constitutional convention that would be based on an accurate understanding of our population and bring everybody to the table. The new constitutional convention will be dominated by the same white male corporate interests as frankly dominated the last constitutional convention. And so it would repeat many of the same problems. So I'm not, no, I'm not in particular favor of a new constitutional convention. I'm in favor of equal representation. And it's a weird thing to say because it's so obvious yet rarely gets talked about when talking about the Constitution or its interpretation. I think everybody should get a, should get a chance. I think everybody should be represented in this government as according to their population. For all this talk about the constitutional amendments, you know the one thing the Constitution itself does not allow you to amend? The unequal suffrage in the, in the Senate, the apartheid structure of the Senate, where every state gets two votes in the Senate, as opposed to the population of that state, the Constitution specifically says that equal sovereignty amongst the states in the Senate cannot be amended through a constitutional amendment 
unless the states themselves agree to relinquish their unequal power. Tell me these white people did not understand the kind of, the kind of white supremacist empire they were writing into existence when they did it in 1787. Brandon, what makes the U.S. unique when it's compared to other countries in the world? We've heard mentions of Colombia, of Chile, of South Africa. Um, what, when it comes to how we amend our constitution, what makes the U.S. Uh, unique? Well, I, you know, I think uh, when we're trying to compare to other countries, many other countries run parliamentary systems, which are very, very different uh, than the way the United States government runs. So it's often an apples to oranges comparison. Uh, and while it might be difficult to amend the, constant, the Constitution here, there are other countries that have experienced similar problems with that as well. Uh, Iceland's current Constitution, which is there's been reform efforts going on for over, you know, over a decade now, I would say. And, uh, you know, for that to get implemented, uh, the current parliament has to vote in favor, uh, basically lose their jobs, a new election will be held, and then the new parliament has to agree to it. So you have to get it agreed to twice, and people have to be willing to give up their jobs to do it. Um, and to no one's surprise, uh, that uh, that reform effort has stalled. So I think other countries face similar difficulties in trying to make a document theoretically amendable, but in practical reality, very difficult to amend. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the precise situation we see ourselves in. And I think many other countries see themselves in that same situation. Let's um, talk a little bit about one of the reasons we're having this discussion, which is the Supreme Court and the de recent decision not just to overturn Roe v. Wade, but some of the other controversial decisions. We got this message from Margot in North Carolina. One of the things that greatly concerns me about the Constitution is that the Supreme Court which is supposed to interpret the Constitution, is not necessarily following its own laws that it's meant to protect. We have at least three people on the Supreme Court who got there by perjuring themselves. They don't follow the letter of the law, and yet they are supposed to interpret the law through the Constitution for us. It doesn't make sense to me. Professor Johnson, can you clarify this um, for our listeners? There is a lot of people who believe the justices lied when they were in their confirmation hearings by saying that Roe v. Wade was a precedent, excuse me, or settled law. Does that constitute perjury? I don't know if that constitutes perjury. Um, I guess I should have a more bold answer to that. Um, I guess the way I think about it, and I say this as someone who worked on confirmation hearings, is that I don't find them um, very useful. There's a lot of incentive um, to say as little as possible and, um, and not to be um, forthright. I think it was pretty clear that the justices that were put on were put on as part of a project um, to get to the point where we where we are, and it was it was obvious at the time, um, there was a vetting um, through the Federalist Society of judges for a range of views, including their views on Roe, and then there was a holding up of Obama nominees, the rushing through of Amy Comey Barrett. I mean, the the writing has been on the wall. I, I think it was um, rather plain. I think the more um, serious issue to really look at is um, the design of the confirmation process, um, everything politically in the lead up to it, but also how much power we give to the Supreme Court. We've been talking about amending the Constitution. I think there are other alternatives to think about, including 
term limits in terms of how we think about um, justices on the court, which might um, de-escalate um, some of the confirmation battles. So, Ellie, the Article Three of the, of the Constitution doesn't say a lot about the Supreme Court. It just says the judicial power of the U.S. shall be vested in one Supreme Court, and it establishes the Supreme Court. It, it lets Congress decide how to organize it. Do you think that the the Constitution should say more, or or what should there be reform of the Supreme Court? I'm a huge uh, believer in court reform. It is the most important thing I believe that we can do as a country right now because, quite frankly, we're talking about amendments. Amendments are powerless compared to what five justices on the Supreme Court say. All right? Um, Let's take the 15th Amendment, right? Right to vote shall not be abridged according to race. Yeah, the Supreme Court ignored that for 100 years. All right, and then they, 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 they put that amendment in a drawer. They didn't make it actionable. Then 1965 Voting Rights Act comes out. All right, now we have protections for the right to vote regardless of race. And then John Roberts, once again, puts the 15th Amendment right back in the drawer in 2020, uh, 2013 in Shelby County v. Holder. The Supreme Court is able to ignore, hobble, or defenestrate any amendment it doesn't like. So controlling the Supreme Court then becomes the key in terms of controlling what rights and responsibilities we have as a nation, and the idea that it is forever limited to nine people is simply wrong. As you said, Article 3, very spare. It does say while in good behavior. So term limits probably do require some kind of constitutional amendment or new whatever. But the idea that the number of justices on the Supreme Court, as it says, Congress can set that up however they want, and in fact they have. We opened in in 1787 with six justices. We went up to seven, we went up to eight, we went up to nine, we went up to ten during the Civil War. Why? Because uh, the Chief Justice at the time, Roger Taney, who was in, by the way, the Chief Justice when they came down with the Dred Scott decision, um, was making rulings that frustrated Lincoln's ability to prosecute the war. And Lincoln was like, you know what, I'm just going to add another judge. We're going to shut up. And guess what he did? So then after Lincoln, we went back down to seven because they didn't like Andrew Johnson. Then we finally settled on nine in 1869. But that number has changed multiple times in American history. It can change again. Um, There's a a proposal right now to add four justices. I think that's fine. My proposal is to add 20 justices because it gets to your point, Celeste, about actual reform. The problem right now is not just that the Supreme Court is too powerful. Yeah. It's that each individual justice themselves is way too powerful yeah. for with, with their lifetime power. So if you add 20 justices and make a 29-person court, which, by the way, is the size of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, so it's not like yeah. we can't find enough chairs, <laughs> um, you make a 29-person court, you have maintained the power of the Supreme Court, but you have significantly weakened right. the power of any individual, individual. justice to change the the course of law and history in this country. And the last point I'll make on that, if you want to see more moderate opinions, try getting a uh, 15-14 majority opinion. It will, by its nature, be more moderate. Okay, so... Brandon, let's bring in politics here because it's impossible that anything's going to happen without considering the realities of politics. Um, To what extent is any amendment impossible at this point? I mean, historians will tell you it's it's realistic to say we have maybe never been so polarized in this nation since the Civil War. Is, is, Is this even a realistic conversation we're having? I don't think amending the federal constitution right now is uh, a realistic conversation. I don't think we're going to get three quarters of states to sign on to anything 
other than some general, vague, very broad principle that doesn't really have any meaning that, again, would go to the Supreme Court to be interpreted, and we would have expectations as to how that would play out. So, no, I, I don't think that's really a realistic option. I think we have to take stock of what has happened, uh, accept that it has happened, and look to the states. I mean, historically, civil rights litigators have understood the power of being able to go to the federal forum or to state courts when the federal courts fail them. And for many people, I think today, uh, the Dobbs decision is a represents a failure to them in the federal court system. So we can look to the state courts, we can look to our state legislatures uh, to do what the federal you know, government or the federal courts uh, cannot or will not. Uh, and I think we, we take that opportunity and we run with it and we do the best we can. So, Professor Johnson, we have this incredibly powerful Supreme Court. We have a constitution that is difficult to amend. And we have two political parties that seem very unlikely to come to any kind of agreement. In history, have we been in this place before? Have we seen a moment like this? I think that we are at a moment of democratic crisis. And of course, we've seen other moments like this. I mean, around the Civil War, around the New Deal, where people were um, talking about the power and the too much power of the Supreme Court. And it led to various kinds of reforms and compromises, obviously, after the Civil War. And you can think of the Dred Scott opinion. Um, it's really presaging some of these conflicts. Um, you had actual amendment of the Constitution. Um, around the period of the New Deal, there was an allowance of um, Congress as um, abilities to regulate the economy um, and grant certain kinds of um, social welfare, what we now consider rights. Um, and so those are the kinds of compromises that are, are made. I mean, I don't want us to end just on a despairing note. I mean, I think it's really important um, that people who are concerned about the Dobbs um, decision really um, focus on the legislative branches. Yes, the state legislatures are part of the answer, but Congress does have the power to codify Roe. And it's also important that Congress itself reform some of the institutional aspects of how it operates. The Senate filibuster has already been mentioned. I'd also mention that um, that the commission on the Supreme Court in its report, I sat on that commission, it does articulate a statutory path um, for term limits. And that's something that there are bills um, currently in Congress on that. Yes, they face a difficult political road, but we shouldn't think of these things as being um, static or immovable. Um, this is our democracy to own. And I understand that we have different views of these things. I also understand that there is an extent to which um, powerful interest groups are mobilizing to protect the current status quo, and our constitutional structure enables that to happen, right? It provides yeah. the terrain in which that can happen. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, um, this has to be done um, through organization and, and legislative outputs um, for immediate change. Professor Olatunde Johnson from the Columbia University School of Law, also with us. Ellie Mistal, he's a correspondent for The Nation, author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. And Brandon Straysner, attorney and researcher at the California Constitution Center. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us. This conversation is part of our Remaking America project. Over the next two years, we'll collaborate with public radio stations across the country to ask how our democracy is working and how it isn't. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producers were Anna Casey and Arfi Getty. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.